Hello, welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, hosted by me, Jack Perks. Professionally, I'm a wildlife cameraman, but I dabble in podcasting, and each Tuesday we release an episode as I have a chat with scientists, artists, filmmakers, and passionate people all about nature in a light-hearted and certainly not serious way. Welcome to the Bearded Tits Podcast. Now, today I'm talking to Matt James from Colossal, which is a organisation trying to bring back the woolly mammoth. De-extinction, as they call it, which I think is a great word. Now, they're also working to bring back other extinct creatures, and we're going to be talking about why they're doing it, how they're doing it, and the process behind it. It is fascinating. It's science fiction, or is it? Uh, Jurassic Park come to life essentially so it's going to be a great chat as always if you can support the podcast via buymeacoffee.com it's always greatly appreciated there is a link in the description and if you can share and leave any reviews as usual that really helps us out anyway let's get straight into it here's Matt James as we talk about de-extinction and bringing woolly mammoths back so thanks for coming on the podcast Matt of course, yeah. Thanks for having me. We're excited to to talk about uh, all things de-extinction. Yeah, so I guess let, let's start at the beginning then. So who are you and what is Colossal? For a lot of our listeners who might not know what you guys are doing. So uh, my name is Matt James. I'm the chief animal officer at Colossal Biosciences, which might be as confusing as uh, what Colossal is. So we can start with <laughs> Colossal is this amazing amalgamation of talent and technology. Um, we're a biotechnology firm that started in early 2021 with this thesis of, of, of building tech technological platforms that allow us to restore species from extinction. So everything from historic extinctions to prehistoric extinctions, finding ways that we can bring animals back from extinction in a way that has these meaningful impacts to the ecosystems and to the ecology of the world that support things like global climate change, biodiversity loss, and uh and you know sort of general conservation and then as the chief animal officer i have this amazing privilege of working with all the live animal aspects of what what's required in de-extinction which tends to be things like animal research reproductive research surrogacy um, as well as animal husbandry for for restored species and then one of my most exciting parts is i also get to do all of the endangered species conservation work because a really important piece of what we do is apply these technologies that we're developing every single day to the conservation, preservation, and restoration of endangered species. So quite quite busy then, in <laughs> short. Sure. Yeah, very, very busy, but yeah. I, I like to think, and, and I, I think I, I hear it from some of my colleagues, that I truly have the best job at one of the coolest companies in the world, um, where I get to um, kind of interface with every team across the organization, as well as all of our partner uh, conservation organizations. I get to talk to amazing people like you and your audience that kind of share our story. Um, you know, uh, last year I was doing quite a bit of work on the road to talk about what we do. And it, and it kind of dawned on me that I'm a colossal evangelist <laughs> and, and one of my jobs <laughs> is to go out there and spread the good word about all the amazing work we're doing. Because it's on paper, it's, it's almost science fiction, isn't it? It's, it's Jurassic Park in, it's probably the simplest way to put it, but it's, it's not far off that, is it really? 
Yeah, exactly. I think the the two most common re reactions I get when I talk to people about Colossal is number one is a Jurassic Park. Like that is everybody understands that yeah. some of what we do is really kind of rooted in those Jurassic Park type ideas. Now, obviously, we're taking quite a different tact on it. Um, we're not going back to dinosaurs. We're not looking at, uh, and, and also the science is sort of the inverse of the way Jurassic Park work. But the second one is that scientific skepticism. They go, is this even possible? Hmm. Uh, and that's, I love that question because it is, when you pull the curtain back and you get to see what Colossal's working on, it's amazing how possible this is, how close we are, um, very, very close to, to, to um, sort of the first species being restored from extinction. And it's because Colossal is this amazing intersection of emerging technologies from genetic engineering, like gene editing and precision editing to reproductive science and artificial intelligence and, uh, and, and animal husbandry, all these amazing sciences that have sort of emerged and are starting to intersect in a way that creates this amazing platform where we can literally reach back in time and bring species back to earth. Because certainly in the UK, when I think of cloning, it's like Dolly the sheep. I don't know if you're familiar with Dolly the sheep. That was sort of the, I mean, this is years and years ago now. And then I've not really kept up with anything since. But I imagine we're a lot more advanced than cloning sheep now. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and so, uh, cloning is is one of the key technologies that we utilize in order to um, su successfully de-extinct a species. And that's yeah. uh, what Dolly the sheep went through is what we call somatic cell nuclear transfer. So that's taking a somatic cell, so like a non-germ cell or not a sperm or an egg, and pulling the nucleus out of that and putting it into an egg and literally fertilizing that egg so it divides and becomes an embryo. And you can transfer that back to another sheep and then Dolly's born. And so that's sort of one of the baseline technologies we have, but we've actually gone beyond that. We've improved it several iterations um, to improve efficiency and, and, off, and you know um, so unintended effects um, but then we also have a, a stack of other things that allow us to um, engineer and edit genomes in a way that we can um, can restore these species that we've lost. So I was looking on your uh, website, and I think the three main species you were looking at was was mammoth, dodo, and thylacine. Yes. So why why these three? What what kind of why do these stand out across all the other animals across time? Yeah, it's a great question, and and you know when you look at the, the one of the most terrifying statistics in the world that you'll, you'll ever read is on average right now we lose about 30,000 species a year to extinction now that's across the entire world from from fungi all the way to to complex mammals right um but that's an enormous number so how do you pick any of them how is one more valuable than another that's a really difficult question but um we started with the woolly mammoth as sort of that first project i think for, for one, you know, one primary reason is this technology and this company was co-founded by Dr. George Church at Harvard Medi Medical School. Uh, Dr. Church is a world famous uh, geneticist. He's sort of the, what we call the godfather of synthetic biology. So he's responsible for developing the technologies that make Colossal possible. Um, George had this idea years ago, and he had been sort of working on it as a side project until he met our CEO, Ben, and they built Colossal together. Um, he had this idea of if we were able to restore a woolly mammoth back to Earth, uh, and we were able to rewild it to the circumpolar north region of the Arctic, um, then we could actually restore the grassland ecosystem that existed when woolly mammoth still existed. 
that ecosystem going back 5,000 years was as diverse as the African savanna is today. So tons of bird life, other small mammal life, because um, elephants or mammoths are what we call ecosystem engineers. They, they spread seeds, right? They disturb soils, they encourage grasslands to grow. So what that would do, you know, in a, you know, in the shortest explanation is allow us to um, actually preserve the permafrost. So the permafrost is that, that permanently frozen piece of soil um, that, that uh, exists in the Arctic regions. That, per that permafrost contains about twice as much organic matter or carbon as the rest of the world combined. So as it's thawing due to global warming, it's, it's, um, it, it's releasing this organic matter that decays and releases methane and carbon dioxide, which are we know are really toxic greenhouse gases. Um, so there's actually these amazing um, researchers in Siberia at a place called Pleistocene Park that have been working on a similar project to understand if we were to restore this mammoth step uh, grassland ecosystem, what effects could we expect? And they have found that they're able to maintain soil temperatures significantly colder inside the park than outside of their park by restoring these grasslands. So that was sort of the premise of the idea is with this is a, a, a one way that we could help with carbon sequestration and, and slowing the uh, that the uh, warming cycle we're experiencing, because between today and 2050, we expect there to be as much carbon released from the Arctic as from the United States. So that's, you know, this world's second largest polluter yeah. uh, is almost doubled up by the Arctic. So finding ways to slow that is is a really important um, piece of that puzzle. And then yeah. uh, that, that was sort of the premise of where the company came from. And we had this wild idea and people were really excited about it. And, uh, and we were able to build um, a seed round of funding and and a series a round of funding and and bring all these amazing people to the company and then we realized oh my gosh this platform is you know has such potential we need to start it to expand in other places and we met this amazing researcher at university of melbourne andrew pask who uh has for the last 20 years been working on the thylacine or the tasmanian tiger um that is a species that is um what we would call an apex predator so um it used to be um, uh, pretty uh, prevalent across, well, very prevalent across Tasmania and mainland Australia, all the way up into Papua New Guinea and New Guinea. Um, and they slowly have been kind of receipt, they were receding all the way back to Tasmania. And then they went fully extinct in 1936, following an Australian government uh, uh, bounty program. They essentially were encouraging people to, to shoot and, and remove them because there was fear that they were predating livestock. And before they realized how many they had removed, uh, they got down to a number that was so low that the population crashed. And uh, and so if you're not familiar with Australian ecosystems, they're just overrun with things like wildlife disease, like um, Tasmanian devil facial tumor disease, or with uh, invasive species, cane toads, rabbits, foxes, cats. All of these are things, effects that could be uh, influenced in the right direction by an apex predator present. Apex predators predate on sick and injured species, right? Uh, so that helps slow wildlife disease. They predate on those small, or Tasmanian tigers in particular, predate on small to medium-sized mammals, which is almost what almost every invasive species in uh, Australia is. So that was sort of the premise for that project. And, and Dr. Pask had been doing tons of work on that. And so we've sort of injected their lab with a lot of our staff and our funding and, and they've and so now we have this amazing collaboration that will allow us to bring the Tasmanian tiger back, hopefully 
very soon in the next few years, um, we're hoping. And then finally, the dodo is, it's the icon of extinction, I think. When, when we think of extinction, dodo is sort of what most, most people um, think of. Right? They went extinct in the mid-1600s due to um, Dutch um, sailors in introducing invasive species. And, if, and people still say, you know, dead as a dodo. If we could find a way to reverse that extinction, I think we can really start to create this optimism in people that we can restore these broken things in the world that we've that that most people take for granted as that's done and past those species are gone we find ways to restore them then we can really start to build a sense of restoration and then responsibility to preserve what's left so essentially it's kind of correcting i think the theme uh, i might be wrong in this but i think the theme of all three of those species is it's largely our fault or we played a part in in their extinction so it's kind of correcting humanity's mistakes in a way with uh, bringing them back yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, sometimes we say it's, you know, trying to amend for the uh, sins of our forefathers and trying mm. to fix what was broken. We're looking at um, species that could be restored, that have this positive effect on our ecosystems and our climate. Um, but we're also driven to extinction by these anthropogenic forces. So yeah. human civilization and human development, human hunting played a role in the woolly mammoth extinction with dodo and, and thylacine. Everybody agrees that was 100 uh, percent mm. driven by humans. So the, the the big question is, how do you do it? I don't know if you can reveal exactly how you do it, maybe, but how 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 do we go from, you know, talking about this and then one day going to Mauritius and seeing dodos or Melbourne and seeing thylacines? Like, how, how do we get there? Uh, I mean, it is it, it is um, incredible. It's much simpler than you might expect, but it's okay. also extremely complicated and, and very, <laughs> a very long process. But it really starts with identifying these species that that we want to restore how can we find um, genomic information on that animal so in the case of the woolly mammoth they did a, these huge favors and they they died in a freezer somewhere right mm. so their their dna was really well preserved when we uncover uh, um, a woolly mammoth in the permafrost we're able to find some really nice dna and also there's lots of intact woolly mammoth specimens across the world in fact we have more than 55 specimens that we've sequenced to create these, these genomes and we have more coming. Um, and, and so that's sort of that first step is, can you create this really nice genome? Can we sequence what a woolly mammoth or thylacine was? And then you sort of have this target. The next step is you identify who's the closest living relative today, who's alive today that would be most closely related to this extinct species. In the case of the mammoth, that's an Asian elephant for the thylacine or the Tasmanian tiger, it's the entire Daziurid family. So Daziurids are, are things like qual and Tasmanian devils, um, numbats. Um, and then the one that we're using is called a fat-tailed dunner. Okay. And, and then you get to the point of, okay, well, if we have, we call them a genomic donor. So what we would do is we use some of our proprietary genomic analysis software to be able to say, compare these two genomes and identify within the genome of the living species, where do they differ from the extinct species? And then we create gene editing tools to literally go in and snip out those differences and put in our DNA of interest. So um, in some cases, a woolly mammoth and a, and a um, uh, Asian elephant are about 99.6% similar. Actually, Asian elephants are more closely related to woolly mammoths than African elephants. Oh, wow. um, a lot of people don't realize that. 
Um, in the, but however, in the case of a, uh, of a thylacine, their closest living relatives from that same clave of marsupials, the Desiurids, they're 75 million years removed. So there's a lot more editing needed. So each of these programs has different challenges. We have a really nice high resolution genome for thylacine, but it requires a lot of edits. We have a nice, but less, you know, less HD version of a, of a genome for uh, woolly mammoth, but it requires fewer edits. So that's sort of that challenge. And then once you make the edits to the genome, it becomes similar to the Dolly the sheep example. We're doing somatic cell nuclear transfer or a few other different types of cloning technologies that allow us to take that the, the genes in the cells that we've proliferated from those edits and drop those into an egg and then let that egg develop into an embryo. That embryo is then transferred to a surrogate. The surrogate um, would, would hold that for its gestational term and give birth to the extinct species. Wow. A really neat project that we, that we don't talk about all the time, uh, but is really exciting. We're also developing a synthetic um, a solution to that. So in some cases, a living relative might not be able to be the gestational surrogate. So we could create an artificial womb, which is amazing, right? That's where wow. it really very science fiction. Um, and then once they give birth, that's where my team sort of takes over and starts to care for the animal, starts to develop rewilding strategies creating partnerships with governments, indigenous people, local communities, universities, and to find ways that how can we restore habitats that are prepared to receive these extinct species and uh, and then put them back in the wild one day. So how close to the original are they then? Is it the case that, you know, if you had one of your um, your new ones, so to speak, and, and the old ones, would they be indistinguishable or is it a, is it a trial and error? Like how, how close, or do you not know yet? No, that's a really good question. I there there are um right there there are iterations within the cells that we'll need to do so that we yeah. can essentially validate that the edits we're making are going to have the phenotypical expression we expect we expect. Um so some of that iteration occurs in vitro, which is really nice because we can do that quite quickly. Um but the idea is to get as close to the original as possible. In some mm. cases, right? Some people might not realize that uh, your genome or any animal's genome doesn't, not every base pair in that genome codes for some sort of physical trait, right? Some of them are what we call non-coding regions. So there are specific parts of the genomes that we might not target for editing because they're really there. They play sort of like a buffering role to fight against you know, unwanted mutations and, and a number of other things. Um, but we're going to, where, where the phenotypes that create the animal are expressed, we want to target as many of those as possible. So we will get very, very close to the original. With the way our technology works today, it's impossible to be 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's incredible. You mentioned like uh, co contacting kind of local governments and indigenous people, because that must be a pretty strange phone call when you go, well, we want to <laughs> drop some mammoths in your town or, um, you know, bring back phylacine or whatever. So like, um, what what's the reaction? Like, have you already approached people for this sort of thing, or yeah, with each of the projects that are up and yeah. running, we've already plugged in to different um, governmental yeah. or, or or community groups because it's important that we don't get so far down a path and then realize there's there's nowhere to go with this. Yeah. So early on in this in this process, we want to plug into those groups so that we can understand not only is this of interest and importance to you, but how should we go about doing this? What's the most respectful way to your culture and your and your, your you know your sort of norms and values so that we can um, be a partner to this? Because 
Our intention is to make these animals so that we have tools to restore biodiversity loss and global climate change. Uh, but we need, in order to rewild them and have those intended effects, we need partners. And 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 this is not a you know Colossal is not going to save the world by themselves. Colossal is hopefully creating a community and network of people that can together do that. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I guess it's really useful not only for um, the species that you've mentioned, but for species that are on their way to extinction as well. So you've almost got like a a backup, if you like, a sort of, you know, saving a video game or something. So it is, it's absolutely bonkers. I think it's brilliant what you guys are yeah. doing. How, I mean, how, it, go on. No, sorry, sorry, Matt, go that's on. That's what drew me to this company. When I first met Ben Lamb, I sort of said, you know, I think I had the same reaction that everybody has. They go, excuse me, you're doing what? <laughs> right. And then you really kind of get into it and you understand Ben's passion and how thoughtful he's really been in creating this company. And then one of the early discussions we had, I had with him, he challenged me to say, find ways to make a difference to the world today. You know, find ways to plug this technology into places where we can really uh, make vast changes immediately, knowing that our technologies take time. Um, and so that's been the most fun part. You know, we, we've rolled out some amazingly exciting projects in the last year. Uh, I think we're really going to be able to make a difference for for uh, um, a lot of different endangered species today. Yeah. How far can you go back, by the way, as well? Like, so you mentioned mammoths. So that's going to be what a few, well, quite a few yeah. thousand years. But like, is, is that is that the limit or can you go even further back? Yeah. You can go rather far. So, right, woolly mammoths, the last one they think went extinct about 4,000 years ago on Wrangell Island off of Alaska in the Aleutian Islands. Um, is that really, it? 4,000 years, really? Yeah. It's not, so think about this. This is something people don't consider a lot, that mammoths roamed the world when the pyramids in Giza were being built. Wow. Right? So that, that, that provides some historical context because some people think of mammoths like dinosaurs. That's 6,500 mm. years. We're talking 4,000 years. So it's really yeah. not as far back in history as you think. Now that said, it regionally, those those populations had changed over for the you know tens of thousands of years prior as well. So um, we have sequences from, from mammoths as you know as young as 4,000 years and also going far farther back to the 100,000 plus years ago. So the technology reaches rather far back. The the limiting factor is the DNA preservation. So okay. mammoths are one are like I said that that whole idea that they died in a freezer is really helpful because the preservation is really great. If it were a tropical species where there is heat, humidity, sunlight, that degrades the DNA much more quickly. So right. we're unable to go as far back. Got you. So something like a thylacine in Australia, yeah, you're not going to be able to go nearly as far back. Exactly. But number one, we don't have to because they were extant so 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 recently. But number ah. two, we the 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 story of how we got these thylacine genomes is really incredible. So as the the bounty program was underway and thylacines were being poached out of existence by by these uh, farmers that were seeking you know a couple dollars for a pelt, um, they would they would kill moms that had um, joeys in the pouch, and uh, so when they would take those, the museums would grab them to to create um, museum specimens and then they realized oh there were joeys in the pouch and they would preserve the joeys now typically the the typical preservation method at that time was formaldehyde well formaldehyde is really bad for dna it actually increases the degradation and makes it harder for us to sequence but a few of them for whatever reason were preserved in ethanol which is one of the best preservations for dna and so we were able to find this one that that 
was sort of labeled the miracle pup. And so we were able to get this beautiful genome from it because it was preserved in ethanol, just probably because that curator ran out of formaldehyde that day. You know, one of those just like really stupid things that made such a huge difference at the end of the day. Little did he know he might be responsible for bringing this animal back because he <laughs> cocked up not having enough, uh, <laughs> enough that. Because there isn't there rumors about them like potentially hanging on? Like, do you subscribe to that? Or do you, you know, you think there might be the odd one or or do you reckon? You know, um, it's it's funny because we talk about it all the time because uh, thylacine has that cryptozoology idea, right? The yeah, same as yeah. here in the States, we have Bigfoot or Swamp Ape or whatever. If you go to Tasmania, I mean, we were just, I just got back last week from a trip to Tasmania. And while we were meeting with community members, we had one of the community members say, I, I've seen one, like as really? recent as a couple of years ago, right? And so it's still, that lore still exists. Um, there is a real hope which is really cool, I think, for our project that people are so hopeful it still exists yeah. because that makes there's such an interest in it. But um, I would say almost definitively, there are no thylacines left in mainland Australia or Tasmania. Okay. There, if there is a remnant thylacine population, it's probably in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Um, okay. If you, and if you think about that, that makes a lot more sense. It's a highly isolated area. Those highlands are almost like islands in the sky. There's the altitude so high, the, the environment's so harsh uh, that people don't tend to live up there. Um, so if if there is anything remaining, I would guess it's there, but I'd say it's still 99% that it's extinct. And yeah. if we're in Papua New Guinea, it's a slightly different species than the one that, that would be found in Tasmania. Got you. Oh, yeah. And the the million dollar question, I guess everyone's going to want to know is, is how soon can we expect to see, you know, mammoths roaming and, and dodos flapping around? Yeah. So, um, you know, one one of the things that uh, you have to love and hate about working for a guy like Ben Lamb is he uh, he has high expectations and he put puts it on us to, to really deliver. <laughs> um, so, you know, he's he's really excited to talk about delivering the mammoth as soon as 2028. Um, so that, wow. I think that would be incredible, right? Um, and that that to me is one of the more exciting parts of it. And and when I came on, I was like, yeah, that's sort of that's what people say, right? You say we're going to do this really soon, but then you see the speed at which uh, the team here operates and the way that we're able to deliver on milestones. It's amazing. It's really encouraging. With the dodo, we don't have a real target date in mind. No. And okay. There's a scientific reason for that. Number one, the way that we described cloning with Dolly the sheep and mammals, sort of pulling the, the nucleus out of a somatic cell, dropping it into an egg, it doesn't work in birds. Oh, I need okay. So we're 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 on the leading edge of what's called primordial germ cell derivation. So literally pulling the precursors of sperm and eggs, culturing those in vitro, editing those, and then injecting those back into a bird that would then mate and create your species of interest. So that is still a technology in the works. Um, but it's what the progress we made since we launched Dodo is, is really amazing. Um, and for me as a conservationist, if when we crack that nut, the applications to the avian world, they're going to be bonkers. Yeah. What, the, the, the what was the... Um... Sorry, what what was the there was a pigeon in America, wasn't there? It was wasn't it like the most common bird in the world? The passenger pigeon. The passenger pigeon, yeah. So presume that's something domestic. I mean, I don't know if people are crying out for passenger pigeons to come back, but they must have been a very important animal because they were ridiculously they, common, weren't they? Yeah the 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 way they used to describe passenger pigeons is that when a flock would fly by, they would block out the sun. 
there were billions of passenger pigeons. Yeah. They yeah, were yeah. really shot out of existence. Yeah. I don't know if the farmers would thank you for bringing them back, but they must have had a they must have had a very important role in the ecosystem. So they've got to be got to be important to to bring yeah. back. Well, look b- before we go, I'll, do, I'll ask one more question, which is I feel like you've kind of already answered this, but you, there might be other bits you want to elaborate in, which is why should we do this? Why you've mentioned about kind of um, climate change, which is as good a reason as any to bring these back. But yeah, why why bring these extinct animals back? Well. You know, the way that I think about this is is that, you know, we sort of talked about our, our previous generations being responsible for the crises we face today. So we we need to find solutions to help reverse those, those negative effects. But the, but the other piece of it is, I think, as we create the ability to do so, we also earn the responsibility to act. Right. So we are living at this amazing intersection of technology today. It is since that intersection ex- exists, we have the responsibility to act. And Colossal has really, you know, come to the forefront to say, not only will we do this, but we'll raise the money, we'll find the partnerships, we'll do everything. Um, so we're very driven to find those those uh, solutions. And, and one of the ones that doesn't get as much attention as I think it should is the biodiversity crisis we face today. Like I said, on there, there, there's a very famous ecologist that estimates we've lost about 30,000 species every single year. Now, when we're talking about the, the high order mammals and, and birds, we're looking at numbers in the hundreds, but still that's an unacceptable yeah. rate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you think of an ecosystem like a Jenga puzzle, it's stable because there's all these different pieces that create the foundation and the center and the top. As we continue to drive species to extinction, we're pulling these these blocks out of that Jenga puzzle and that ecosystem is becoming wobbly and losing stability. There will be a point where we pull on a block and the whole thing collapses. So what we need to do today is find ways to reverse the biodiversity crisis, not just slow it down, not just stem it. That's an important role that that traditional conservation organizations have been working on and need to continue to work on. And we hope our technologies will support but we need to find ways to put blocks back into the Jenga puzzle to really help create that foundational stability so we don't have a massive catastrophic collapse of ecosystems because that will affect humans more directly. That's food chain security, you know, right? That That's uh, water, that's climate, all, all of those things that we need to worry about just to survive in this world. Um, so if you don't care about the intrinsic value of nature or animals, that's fine. If you wanna be self-centered, care because it will come to bite you in the ass one day yeah no i, I think you're completely right it's we're we're a reactionary race when we should be far more precautionary like we just seem to oh well this thing's cocked up let's uh let's try and fix this one yeah we are heading for a major crisis if we don't try and advert it so look matt absolutely fantastic to talk to you um I'm, i can't wait to kind of turn on the news one day and see mammoths roaming around where, where, where would they be released where would you where would you put them back we're working with a number of different governments. Uh, we plugged yeah. in the uh, to uh, I think Alaska is a great opportunity. We yeah. are American-based company, so uh, okay. American Arctic would be a, a target. But um, Canada, Greenland, Siberia all have different um, Arctic regions that that could be candidates for that. Awesome! I went to Alaska last year for a filming job, so um, Mammoth would have made that far more uh, interesting <laughs> as it already was. But yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. So uh, thanks, thanks for coming on. No, thanks for having us. And, uh, you know, anytime that that I can uh, evangelize, you know, just call me. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> Thank you. That was Matt James with Colossal. It does sound, you know, a little bit kind of magical, but it's happening. 
Well, hopefully it's happening. So, yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. And at the end of the day, woolly mammoths could be back in the world. That's got to be worth a punt, hasn't it? Surely. Hopefully you've enjoyed today's episode. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next Tuesday. Cheers.